And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. If you're listening to my show, you're looking for tips on how to work smarter, not harder. And let's be real, you're already working hard to earn your money, but how do you make sure that your money is working hard for you? Here's how. With a Betterment Automated Investment and Savings app, your money will go to work. They've got technology that will provide you with advanced tools, and they're built to help maximize your returns, not to mention your time. They have expert-built portfolios of low-cost exchange-traded funds. You know I love those exchange-traded funds. There's automated investing technology, and as part of that, automated rebalancing. Many of you have been asking about rebalancing, and it sort of feels like a hard thing to do on your own. With Betterment, easy peasy. They do it for you. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, Performance is not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. Welcome to the Jill on Money Coronavirus Market Update. It is Saturday, September 5th, and we are delighted that you are listening to us. Before we get to our big interview today, and it'll be a three-parter, so get psyched, just want to give you an update on the jobs report, which came in pretty much as expected. Just under 1.4 million jobs were created last month in August. That was what economists had expected. And of those jobs, a whole bunch were census employees. So that's not great because those are temporary hires. 238,000 of the hires were census employees. All right. But still, there was some broad-based hiring. That was good. The unemployment rate fell more than expected to 8.4%. And even better, the broader unemployment rate. That's the one that takes into account people working part-time who want full-time work. That rate dropped to 14.2%. Also good news. Okay. But reality check, gang, it's still pretty awful out there. Even with four strong months of job creation, there are 11.5 million fewer jobs than what we had before the pandemic. So it's a giant hole. The economy is sort of refilling it. That's great, but we're still in a hole. So make sure that you don't get too ahead of yourselves. Uh, enjoy the gains that you have seen over the last, say, six Eh, yeah, six months since the the bottom of the stock market. I think it's going to be bumpy in the future. So I think we'll see some more of those weird one days where you have a two or 3% drop. But that said, take a deep breath because I have a special treat for you this weekend. We have a three-part interview with the CEO of TIAA, Roger Ferguson, and I am so psyched for this. We conducted this interview back in February before the brunt of the virus had impacted the economy. So today, we're going to talk about Ferguson's background in general, how he has worked at the Federal Reserve, and a look at monetary and fiscal policy. Here's the first part of our interview with TIAA CEO, Roger Ferguson. So we start each show with a very simple question. What is the best career or money decision you ever made? You know, the best career decision I made was to stay in school and finish my education. Now, 
I did a lot more than most people and I stayed in school till I was 30, <laughs> which I'm not sure is going to be everyone's cup of tea. But I loved uh, economics and, and had to get a PhD and I was interested in the law and decided to do that as well. But my entire career has been built around the fact that I really finished my education. And you know, if I can give one piece of advice, it's stay in school, finish your education, and then your career will unfold. You, uh, we talked before you came on the air, you got a couple of kids. They're also uh, very educated and they're doing advanced degrees. What's your view on the value of, say, an MBA in this day and age? Because I hear from a lot of kids and they say, oh, I got an MBA, but I had to borrow 100 grand to get it. Yeah. So, look, I, I believe higher education is almost always a good value for sure. However, if you have to borrow money, you have to ask the question, what's the likely return going to be? So, frankly, if you're getting an MBA, maybe borrowing $100,000 makes an awful lot of sense. If you're going to go into social work... Not so much. Not so much. Mm. So, the issue is figuring out the likely income from the career and then borrow appropriately for what your income's likely to be. You have some resume. Oh, my God. I can't even. You're awfully trying. I mean, really. Okay. Where should we start? Okay, let me just say that you were a former vice chairman of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. What is really happening in those meetings? Are you guys having lunch and like, how the kids? Like, what <laughs> happens in the, the door closes, what's happening? You know, it happens at the, it's the, the FOMC, it's called the Federal Open Market Committee. You know, it starts with a couple of staff people giving you a really deep insight into what's happened in the economy, the markets, how the, the Fed staff predicts the economy is likely to unfold. And then, you know, it goes around and each individual member of the, the committee gives, uh, it could be a formal and read statement, it could be a, a less formal, impromptu uh, kind of conversation. And you listen very closely to what your colleagues have to say, and often there's a touch of give and take back and forth, not in a challenging argumentative sense, but in you know a series of people at max 19 people having a very heavy responsibility and trying hard to parse through what is often you know inconsistent or inconclusive information to make you know, a very important choice. How long were you on the Federal Open Market Committee? So I was uh, um, a governor of the Federal Reserve and therefore a member of the Open Market Committee for approximately nine years. And Um, what years were those? Starting in late 1997 and going through the middle part of 2006. Oh, that's a fun time. It was a great time. (laughs) So, you know, a number of things happened in the economy. You know, we had some very, very good years. Um, We had the relatively short uh, recession, more or less, in in 2001, a market correction. Um, Then some very good times, obviously. Uh, and, you know, I also was heavily involved in and probably most famously known for leading the Fed's initial response after 9-11. Um, I was the only governor in town on that Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. And it fell to me to, you know, lead what the Fed's initial response would be for this incredible shock to mm. not just the terrible loss of life, but also a real shock to the financial markets in the U.S. and globally. In your lifetime, had the stock exchange ever been closed for that many days? No, the stock exchange had never been closed for that many days. Um, uh, there are significant challenges to the the infrastructure that allows us to all of us to pay our bills, um, and that means individuals, but also big institutions. You know, the ability to move money around on small and large scales was uh, completely 
uh, collapsed, frankly, on that day. And it took a lot of work to get things back to normal. So on 9-11, it occurs. And then you guys cut rates by 50 bips that first couple of days. Is, yes. Am I remembering that well, right? Well, what happened was um, on 9-11, which was a Tuesday, the crisis occurred. Uh, the Federal Reserve got heavily involved in providing liquidity through lots of different technical means to keep the economy floating and to keep the global economy floating. And then the, the Open Market Committee met on that Monday and we cut rates by 50 basis points. And you know, it's very important to do both things, to create the liquidity at the moment, mm-hmm. important to create a sense of confidence that things weren't going to collapse, and then to you know, show that the FOMC was ready to do its part by reducing interest rates. And fortunately, the, the economy um, you know, could have been in horrific shape, ended up being relatively short and shallow recession and turned around. The recession occurs. Now there's this thing called a real estate boom, probably in the early years. And so you're hearing from the regional banks. When is it that there is some, there's some anxiety that you're hearing about or reported about, like, wow, housing prices are going nuts? Because I think I remember reading the transcripts and that Janet Yellen, who was at the San Francisco Fed, had said, like, there's some weird stuff going on here. Right. So, you know, one started to pick up early inklings in 2004, 2005. Mm. Um, but one has to, you have to recognize that, you know, markets across the country are highly uneven. There are different cycles in different places. Real estate in particular is very local and reflects local supply and demand conditions. Um, and so one of the hardest jobs uh, at the Fed or any other policy is to take inklings of information and figure out, is there a pattern here? Are these sort of separate uh, and distinct activities, so to speak? And that's part of why having you know the wisdom of a committee is so important. Why do you think the Fed didn't quite capture this idea of the amount of leverage in the system? Because leverage is not you know totally visible to anybody. Um, you know it, it, it's a number of small decisions made by private actors. Some of them you know, regulated by the Fed, some of them not regulated by the Fed. When we think about you know, the housing crisis, there are mortgage brokers who are heavily involved. There are small uh, banks that are involved. And so you know, trying to you know, gather up all of that, some of which is not even in the court and the regulatory net, is always going to be tricky. And at the time, before we had the move of Goldman and Morgan Stanley to financial holding companies, the Fed wasn't regulating them anyway. Absolutely. I talked about the small ones, but there are also some very large ones as well. And, you know, all of that, much of that, though not all, has changed now. But for sure, there are large and small players who are not, you know, bank holding companies and therefore weren't reporting all their information to the Federal Reserve. So now the Fed has this dual mandate, you know, have a good economy, people get jobs, keep prices in check, and also there's a regulatory part of the job. When you look at the Fed today, do you think it's harder to be a, a Federal Reserve official today than it has been in the past? I think the honest answer is it's always been tricky. You have to understand the Federal Reserve was the primary regulator since about the mid-50s for bank holding companies, which were some of the largest holding companies in the country. Um, and so what has evolved is more holding companies, more institutions that have become bank holding companies. But the challenge was always was always there. Um, you know, the only other thing that has changed, as you point out, is instead of having this be a bit of an informal mandate, there is now a much more formal mandate. So I'd say overall, the job is as challenging as it was before. 
um, hasn't changed dramatically. It, it has become a bit more formal. And now there is a vice chairman in charge of regulation supervision. So there's an individual um, who is very senior in the system. Uh, that's a result of, of the, the crisis as well. So the, the, the focus is now on one individual who has a title. In looking at the Fed's responsibility, I also wonder how you feel about this notion that markets and investors are relying so much on the Fed to do this heavy lifting with monetary policy versus probably when you started, there was a real sense of, well, if bad stuff happens, we have a Congress, there can be some fiscal aspect to this. It can't just be the Fed. So how how do you feel about that evolution? This evolution has been an important one for sure. Now, we always knew that monetary policy could act more quickly around a crisis Uh, But there was an expectation for sure that fiscal policy would play its role. When we look back on history, what we discover in the United States is indeed fiscal policy did play its role. There are some uh, economists who I think will look back and say, you know, fiscal policy should have been even more aggressive and stayed the course even longer. Um, So it's not as though they weren't present, but, you know, one can debate should they have done more. Having said that, when I look overseas to Europe, I would say there you really see a case where fiscal policy has been relatively absent um, and monetary policy is forced to take on too much of a burden. The European Central Bank having to get to negative interest rates is a territory that no one ever imagined. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure that it's worked out as they had hoped. The the U.S., I think, gets good grades on the balance of fiscal and, and monetary, perhaps could have done better. Europe, I think, um, does not get uh, equally high marks on the balance of fiscal and monetary, put too much weight on monetary, not enough on fiscal. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you have a great Saturday of Labor Day. If you have a financial question, we are still here for you. We are laboring around Labor Day weekend. Our email address is askjill at jillonmoney.com, askjill at jillonmoney.com. And of course, feel free to go to the website, jillonmoney.com. You can read columns that I've written, listen to past shows, watch some TV appearances, and check out the resource section, jillonmoney.com. Now, don't forget, Labor Day weekend, still have to do all of your work. That means wash your hands, wear your masks, maintain that physical distancing, and don't forget to do something nice for somebody else out there. We'll talk to you tomorrow.